0: July 16, 1964. Dear Mr. Nelson, As you probably already know, there have been many arrests in Greenwood, which is only 30 miles from where I am working. Tomorrow I expect to be there to pick at the jailhouse. This means almost certain arrest. Yours in freedom, Cephas. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today I'm continuing a discussion of Freedom Summer, 1964. Please note that some of the descriptions of violence are disturbing. The N-word is also used throughout the primary sources and is bleeped out. The Mississippi Freedom Project was led by Bob Moses of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. He and other activists had been fighting in Mississippi for civil rights for years and believed that the involvement of white volunteers would force the federal government to pay more attention to the rampant and unpunished violence against black Mississippians who tried to vote. Back in episode one of the Great Migration series, I talked about the measures that southern states took to disenfranchise black citizens after the passage of the 15th Amendment. One hundred years later, these devices, which included poll taxes, literacy tests, and violence, were still in place in Mississippi. Other southern states had made some progress toward full enfranchisement of African Americans. In 1963, 44% of black citizens in Georgia were registered to vote. 58% 58% were registered in Texas, and almost 70% in Tennessee. However, in Mississippi, fewer than 7% of eligible black Americans were registered, even though they made up half of the population. Black doctors, teachers, and PhDs purportedly failed the voting tests that most white applicants were not required to take. Even with a majority black population, Isakina County in the southern Delta region had no registered black voters. Unita Blackwell was one of the several local women who attempted to register at the courthouse that summer. She talked about her Freedom Summer experiences in a 1986 interview for the documentary Eyes on the Prize. When asked about their source of courage, she said, I guess our courage came out because we didn't have nothing, that we couldn't lose nothing, because we wanted something for ourselves and for our children. And so we took a chance with our lives because, I said, we were already, you know, walking around dead because we didn't have a life, just existing. It came up out of the necessities of life that we were missing. And so the courage came from that. Another thing, a lot of people that we talked to, because I was teaching Sunday school at the time, talking about what we were going to do around voter registration and God helped those who helped themselves. And that's one of the things we, were, we kept talking about in organizing people to go out to try to register to vote. It was all organized around the basic things that we understood. Like the people in Mississippi Delta knows a lot about God and church. What the Bible says, and we saw it as our strength. And we didn't have anything, you know. And that's the way we went at it. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. And whatever we do, we're going to be better off. A volunteer named Barbara Woodward described some of the challenges that black applicants faced when attempting to register to vote. I'll read portions of her report, dated May 1964, a month before the project started. She called it Mission to Mississippi. I have titled this report Mission to Mississippi, because we are on a mission of ministry to the Southern Negro, and because Mississippi is another country, a police state within the boundaries of the United States. The week was unforgettable, filled with Christian fellowship and oneness in Jesus Christ. There were moments of side-splitting laughter and moments of silent crying, as we shared the experience of talking with Negroes and listening to their stories of oppression and courage. We saw fear in their eyes and sensed feelings of futility and deep, smoldering resentment. Woodward lists the members of her group and describes the organization and cooperation between CORE, SNCC, and other groups. She also went into some of the history, then described a voter drive in February, and the high price many blacks paid for trying to register. The Negroes were being photographed as they stood in line, and four persons lost their jobs that day. The registrants are given a section of the Constitution and asked to copy it, word for word, comma for comma, capital for capital, period for period. Any mistakes or misspelled words are marked wrong. Then they are asked in the next question to interpret what they wrote. Sample. Section 21, The Privilege of the Writ of Habeas Corpus Shall Not Be Suspended, unless when in the case of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it, nor ever without the authority of the legislature. The white men in our large group were stopped constantly and asked for identification. Jean and I were followed by two police cars one afternoon, all afternoon, but we were never stopped, nor did the police ever speak to us. Grady Poulard was arrested several times on charges of illegal parking and switched license plates a rented car from Memphis. The police managed to keep him busy in court, so he couldn't do much else. His task in Canton was to organize the Negro leadership. One Negro, a Corps representative, was kept in jail three days for illegal parking. One Eden seminary student was assaulted on the street downtown shortly after breakfast by a white man. There were two or three police looking on, Another student was given a ticket for driving Grady Poulard's car. The charge switched license plates. The night before we left, some of us were tailed home by the police and then kept awake all night by their car going by with a siren and someone shouting in a bullhorn, Lover, go home, or get out of bed, Lover. Kofo received many threats of bombing and some threats reported from the Klan. The FBI was called in, and assured Kofo that they wanted to know of all contacts made by the clan. The police left us alone that day. As we talked with our hosts, we heard many stories of police oppression and brutality. Canton is hurting badly from an economic boycott. The fourth store had gone out of business the week we were there. The 19-year-old daughter of our hostess had been jailed for two weeks for passing out a handbill listing the stores to be boycotted. She was released on a $1,000 property bond and will have to stand trial after graduation. She will get either six months in jail or her family will have to raise an additional $850. Her boyfriend was also arrested and beaten by the police. One mother had gone to the jail to ask about her son. While she was waiting, she could hear the police in the back in the back room beating someone. It turned out to be her own son. As the week wore on, we found ourselves asking the question, how much longer will they take it? When you look into the faces of some of the young corps leaders, you know it would take nothing to start a full-scale bloodbath. Our hostess voiced her feelings of frustration and futility over and over again. She said, You can say anything to me, call me anything, but don't hit me. Her generation and the younger Negroes are fed up. Why were African Americans in Mississippi... Willing to risk loss of livelihood and even loss of life to register to vote? And why were white Mississippians so determined to stop them? Unita Blackwell has the answer. Well, the white people knew what it meant. The black folks didn't know that much what it meant. I was only told when I started off that if I registered to vote, that I would have food to eat and a better house to stay in. Because the one I was staying in was so raggedy you could see anywhere and look outdoors that I would have, my child would have a better education. And at that particular point, our children only went to school two to three months out of the year. That's what we were told. It was the basis, the needs of the people. And for the whites, they understood it even larger than that in terms of political power. And we hadn't even heard that word, political power, because it wasn't even taught in the black schools. We didn't know it was such a thing as a board of supervisors and and the school board members and what they did, and even the mayor. I mean, my mother has never thought in terms that that I would, you know, ever be anything. So nobody's, you know, no one's ever thought about any of those things. In 1976, Unita Blackwell became the first African-American woman to be elected mayor in the state of Mississippi. She served until 2001. Mrs. Blackwell credited part of her political transformation to summer volunteer Muriel Tillinghast. Tillinghast decided to join the summer project three days after graduating from Howard University, where she had been part of the nonviolent action group, NAG, and had organized with Stokely Carmichael. Blackwell recalled, quote, For someone so young and petite, she had a serene strength about her. Muriel Tillinghast truly gave me the education of my life. Quote. Blackwell also recalled, quote, What Muriel really taught us was to have pride in ourselves. End quote. Tillinghast's afro initially drew giggles from the local women and offers to straighten it. But within a year, Blackwell and other women were wearing their hair the same way. According to Blackwell, quote, She walked different than we did. Wasn't no fear we could see. We had never quite seen anybody this unafraid and yet she also recognized, now that I look back on it, the danger that she was in, end quote. Tillinghast did recognize the danger, and later said, I spent my first two weeks in the upstairs office of the Greenville Project. I was petrified. How was I going to survive Mississippi? It dawned on me that I would never get anybody to register to vote staying in the office. So, slowly, I started coming downstairs, and cautiously going out into town. I walked like a shadow on the wall, edgy, just getting used to walking in the streets. Just a few weeks later, Muriel was put in charge of the Greenville project, when the director, Charlie Cobb, moved on to a different activity. Tillinghast wrote in 2010 that, encouraging people to vote in Mississippi was unlike most of my prior organizing activity yet it called on everything that I had learned up to that point. Mississippi was proud of its cruelty toward Black people and provided such a threatening environment for Black residents around the exercise of basic human rights that voting wasn't even on the list of possibilities. For better or worse, however, the vote is a cornerstone of democracy, and without it, Mississippi's Black population would continue to be outside of the political framework. When we started organizing people to register, at first, the system would allow only for a few people to be registered each day. Sometimes, the courthouse closed for unannounced emergencies. Gradually, as local people came to trust us, they would talk to their neighbors, and the number of people willing to register swelled. When we could, we examined voter rolls and found out that many of the names were bogus. In Nisikina, for example, more than half of the names of white voters on the voter rolls were names from the local cemetery. Few Americans outside of Mississippi knew about the violent battle over democracy being waged in that closed society. The organizers of Freedom Summer sought to change that. Over 2,000 young people from northern and western states responded to the call and signed up to go to Mississippi, where they would teach in citizenship schools and help with voter registration. The voter registration volunteers had arrived for training at the Western College for Women in Oxford, Ohio, on June 13th. They left for Mississippi on June 21st. University of Maryland graduate Cephas Hughes was one of the few African-American summer volunteers, and he wrote the following letter shortly after arriving in Mississippi. Dear Mr. Nelson, I arrived here in Milestone, Mississippi, Sunday afternoon with the rest of the group. At the church, we were assigned to various homes. I was, luckily, assigned to Mr. T. L. Louis. The trip down here has exhausted my finances. Now there isn't even enough money to do my laundry. So, please, if possible, send money. Our, the Southwest Group, stay here in Holmes County is only temporary, about three weeks. It is hoped that we will gain experience in talking to the people. Holmes County is one of the easier areas of Mississippi. And yet, even here, the farmers don't go out at night, always travel in Paris during the day, are always well-armed, and even sleep with shotguns. Mr. Louis has already spent one night in the shed behind the house, waiting with his gun for one of those dynamite tosses. Everyone here is trembling with fear. Each man fears an uprising by the other. Black men fear that white men will return to the old, to the old ways, shooting, lynching, and castration, to break our stride for freedom. White men fear that black men seek not freedom, but revenge. This generation of Mississippi blacks and whites, I'm sure, cannot be brought together. Their salvation lies in their children, who should be forced to go to school together, thereby forcing each to understand the other. Meanwhile, if law enforcement agencies don't restrain the violent ones, then Mississippi will drown in its own blood. Until yesterday, Wednesday, I was helping clean out the houses that were donated to us for schools and community centers by the farmers. Norman Clark mentioned how difficult it was for people to get telephones. So our first opportunity to meet people came over the telephone issue. We are forming two groups. One, 49 people interested in confronting the telephone company. Two, two, Six families to confront the electric company about electricity for their homes. Our goals are twofold. One, to try to help get telephones and electricity. Two, to get new organizations to go to the courthouse to register. We wanted to distribute handbills to the farmers when we discovered that we have no stencils. Could you possibly send a few to Cephas Hughes, care of T.L. Louis, Route 2, Box 187? Chula, Mississippi, 39169. I've just heard a rumor that Bob Moses will not send us to southwest Mississippi after all. It seems that the white populace there is armed to the teeth, even possessing hand grenades to toss at, quote, suspicious looking cars on the road. I hope law comes to Mississippi before it is too late. Yours in freedom, Cephas. Donald N. Nelson, was a member of an organization called Friends of Mississippi Freedom Project. The Friends sponsored Hughes and 29 other Mississippi volunteers. In the last episode, I talked about the volunteers who taught in the freedom schools. In addition to teaching Blacks about their rights and responsibilities as citizens, the schools also provided educational and cultural opportunities that had previously been denied to African Americans in the state. Based on the numbers of participants, and the accounts of many students and teachers, which I shared in that episode, the education component was very successful. Voter registration was much more challenging. One in 20 black residents might invite the canvassers into their homes to speak their piece. One in 100 might register. When asked if they wanted to register, blacks responded with, I just can't get my mind on all that. I never voted and I'm too old now. Or they might say, I don't want to mess with that mess. When one canvasser tried to talk about the Negro's responsibility, a woman responded, I ain't no Negro. I'm a. The boss man, he don't say nothing but girl to me. I'm just a. I can't sign no paper. Their fear was understandable. Blacks knew they could lose their homes or jobs or face even worse reprisals for trying to vote. As Fanny Lou Hamer had, Fanny Lou Hamer attended her first SNCC meeting in nineteen sixty two Hamer was the twentieth child of sharecroppers, and, like most blacks in Mississippi, she had suffered a life of brutal poverty and injustice. She recalled wishing quote so bad that she was white and helping her mom roam the Marlowe plantation, quote scrapping shreds of cotton to sell. Her father would save his hard-earned wages to buy wagons and farm tools. But there was nothing he could do to stop an envious white man from poisoning his mules. So at that SNCC meeting, when James Foreman told the group that voting would empower them to remove racist politicians and sheriffs, she was ready. Hamer's hand shot up, quote, as high as I could get it, when Foreman asked volunteers to register to vote. A few days later, she took a bus to, Sunfl- to the Sunflower County Courthouse. As Barbara Woodard had mentioned, after copying a section of the Mississippi Constitution, applicants had to interpret it. Hamer was told to explain de facto laws. Later, she said, I knowed about as much about a de facto law as a horse knows about Christmas Day. Needless to say, she failed but was kicked off the plantation because she refused to withdraw her registration. She went to live with a neighbor, and late one night, that home was shot into 16 times. But evictions, beatings, which I talked about last time, and shootings did not stop Hamer. She said, quote, The only thing they could do to me was kill me, and it seemed like they'd been trying to do that just a little bit at a time, as long as I could remember. Hamer was deeply spiritual and saw it all as her cross to bear. Bob Paris Moses was the literal Moses leading them to the promised land of freedom, and their summer volunteers were the Good Samaritans. The summer project organizers attempted to prepare the Good Samaritans for what lay ahead. The SNCC handbook warned them to, quote, know all roads in and out of town. They were often followed by police cars. On one canvassing trip, Two volunteers wondered why the field hands they were speaking to just stared at them nervously. The pair finally turned around to see a white man in a pickup truck with a shotgun on the rack behind him and a pistol on the seat. Did that... invite you here? the man asked. Did you know that Mississippi law allows me to shoot trespassers? Are you going to get off this plantation? The volunteers left, but day after day that summer, young people from Boston and Berkeley continued to knock on doors. The SNCC Handbook advised, quote, if a person shows obvious reluctance, don't force a long explanation on them. Come back another day to explain more. Lawrence Guillot taught that instead of offering overwhelming possibilities, canvassers could focus on a single goal, like just attending a registration class or a mass meeting, or just visiting the courthouse. Meet people where they were, find a topic of conversation that's comfortable whether it's fishing or religion, then turn it back to voting. If convinced to register, the next bold step would be participating in a Freedom Day. These were organized all over the state throughout the summer. Volunteer Lise Vogel from New York wrote the following on the Cleveland Freedom Day. Freedom Day began at about 10 a.m. Between 10 a.m. and noon, only six people were admitted into the courthouse. Two were inside at one time, but probably only one was actually registering. The police attempted to make a list of people lined up, but stopped at our request after about half the names were put down. One staff member tried to enter the courthouse with those trying to enter and was prevented. At noon, the courthouse was closed for lunch. Between 1 and 5 p.m., 19 people were admitted. These applicants seemed to have been processed at an incredibly rapid rate, although at all times only two people were inside the courthouse. While the people were being registered, a picket line was maintained in the front of the main steps of the courthouse. At times there were as many as 35 picketers on the line, carrying signs reading Freedom Now, One Man, One Vote, etc. The line was silent for most of the day. During the afternoon the picket line sang and chanted three times. The third time it was asked to shut up, whereupon a local Shawwoman began the Lord's Prayer. Sheriff Cap of Bolivar County provided 35 to 40 special police, in addition to about 10 regular police. The sheriff was present all day. All persons, white or Negro, without business, were prevented from entering the campus. At 5 p.m., the special police left, and Sheriff Cap insisted that the remaining applicants, picketers, and volunteers leave immediately promising immunity if cars were overloaded. They were. In addition to the 39 applicants and 15 to 20 volunteers, about 20 local people participated in the picket line. Most of the applicants, picketers, and volunteers came from Shaw. A few were from Mound Bayou, and towards late afternoon, six people from Cleveland arrived to to register. The days organized by volunteer Jonathan Black, the spirit of Bradford remained in dry deck. Applicants encountered virtually no harassment in the courthouse. Several persons were required to take the entire test, although they showed the registrar affidavits that their educations ranged from sixth grade to two years of college. The registrar appeared to not understand the significance of a sixth grade education under the recent Civil Rights Act and simply said he would pass the affidavits in with the applications. The Freedom Day was considered a success by all participants and Bolivar County COFO looks forward to more Freedom Days and perhaps a Freedom Week. As the organizers had expected, Freedom Summer focused national attention on Mississippi. The disappearance of SNCC workers James Chaney and Michael Schwerner and summer volunteer Andrew Goodman made headlines in papers across the country. Three days after Cleveland's Freedom Day in Bolivar County, the county was featured in the New York Times. As the paper reported... We are moving heaven and earth to stay out of the national newspapers, said Clifton Langford, the editor of the Boulevard commercial, the local weekly. The Columbia broadcasting system, which wanted to portray the town, was turned down. The leaders will not talk to most out-of-state reporters. The white community is extremely sensitive to the current national portrait of Mississippi. It is resentful over judicial, congressional, and presidential activities in the civil rights field, and it is angered by the arrival in Mississippi of white and Negro volunteer civil rights workers. Again and again, a visitor is assured of individual affection for the Negro. Repeatedly, a visitor is challenged about racial troubles in northern cities. He is often asked, as Sheriff Capps asked, what would happen if 200 of us went up to Harlem as evangelists to tell the southern side of the story? Why, there wouldn't be enough police up there in the city to protect us, yet these people come down here. On municipal issues, the leadership here is more progressive than in any other Mississippi cities. On the race issue, however, it reflects accurately both orthodox segregation and a total commitment to its continuance. The leadership believes that the Negro is racially different and inferior, that any move toward change is prompted by agitators and radicals from outside, acting in concert with vote-hungry Northern politicians. We believe in the separation of the races, said Mr. Langford, and I mean believe it like we believe in God. The article gave the racial breakdown of the county in the 1960 census. 36,663 Negroes and 17,521 whites. Though cotton is a major part of the economy, State Senator W.B. Alexander claims that the state could get by without as much black labor. We could get along with 15,000 coloreds in this county, Mr. Alexander said. The leadership is acutely aware of the population figures and aware of Reconstruction times when Negroes voted and sent to the United States Senate a Cleveland Negro named B.K. Bruce. We're not going to have another one, said Sheriff Capps the county is equally determined not to have a Negro sheriff, a Negro chancery court clerk, or integration of its schools. We don't want classrooms mixing in our children with some colored child who thinks only of sleeping with some girl or throwing craps, said Mr. Langford. Mr. Moore added, I think there is very real fear in this community of what integration would cause, racial amalgamation and weakening of the society. I have a little girl, and I would hate to have her go to school with such integration. We do fear racial intermarriage. It is common sense that if you went to school with them, there would be some intermarriage. If there was an integrated school, you would have to make a constant effort to warn the child against her classmates. At least, I would feel I had to, and I don't want to do that, Mr. Moore said, but we do feel the Negro is an inferior race. The Negro added, Senator Alexander is much, much lower than the white man morally. In fact, Mr. Alexander added, the colored race is a tremendous burden on this state financially, and we are bearing it without complaint. In this determination to preserve segregation, there is little interest in complying with the civil rights law. The Boulevard Commercial has told its readers that the decision is entirely personal, and it also applauded Governor Paul B. Johnson's recommendation for noncompliance until the law is upheld in courts. Later in the article, Sheriff Capps said, I realize it may sound foolish, but 95% of our blacks are happy. We understand our way of life and we understand each other, said Sheriff Capps. The local leader of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is characterized as an agitator by Mr. Langford. He's out for personal gain and the local people know it, Mr. Langford said. Yet, there is concern over some of the changes in the Negro. The young I'm told, are becoming a little more militant. That could create a problem. They are not as respectful, a little more reluctant to say yes sir or no ma'am, said Mr. Moore. For this reason, there is little sympathy to the white and Negro youths who have entered Boulevard County as part of the summer project. To me, their motives are unspeakable, said Sheriff Capps but I told them I'm going to keep them alive no matter what. We're going to do everything we can to keep the federal marshals out of Mississippi. Why, just yesterday, one of those young people told me that that their plan was to have marshals come to Mississippi. They are dirty, they are not clean, they do not dress. The no high-class whites and no responsible colored people are fooling with them. And yet they come in trying to change this wonderful community of ours, Sheriff Capps said. One true statement by Sheriff Capps is about the hope for federal law enforcement intervention. Freedom Summer organizers, volunteers, and their parents and loved ones all wrote letters to politicians asking for protection for the project. Some responses were very encouraging, like this one from Don Edwards, representative from the 9th District of California, to Amzie Moore, who I talked about in the last episode. The Congressman's letter says, July 13th, 1964. Dear Mr. Moore, Many thanks for your kindness in meeting with my son, Len, and me, and for arranging for the delightful and delicious dinner with Mrs. Watson. Your continued support and friendship for the fine young people of Kofo are appreciated by all decent thinking Americans. I am sure you know that your friends here at our nation's capital will continue to be diligent in their efforts to secure for you and the other participants in this great movement adequate federal protection so that your work can be carried on in an atmosphere free from lawlessness and violence. With best personal regards, sincerely, Don Edwards. Ten days later, the parents of volunteer Sheldon Stromquist received a letter with a slightly different tone. This letter is from Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois, who was also chair of the Joint Economic Committee. He begins by thanking Mr. Stromquist for his letter, then expresses sadness about the disappearance of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, as well as his support for the federal efforts to find them. He goes on to say, At the direction of President Johnson, the Department of Justice has sent to Mississippi a considerable number of federal marshals and FBI agents To help avert attacks on the students working there under the COFO project. The administration has my full support in doing this and in taking further steps, which are legal and appropriate, to protect the project workers and those who are trying to help when local law enforcement officials are unable or unwilling to do so. I regret very much, however, the impression with some of the supporters of the project may have been given that it was likely or even possible that the federal government would send thousands of federal marshals into Mississippi in order to blanket the state with federal law enforcement. The facts simply are that we do not have a national police force with which to do this and that there are severe constitutional and practical limitations on the authority of the national government to attempt to wrest control of local government from local and state officials. The present denial of individual rights and failure of law enforcement in many areas of the South is disheartening and a strong provocation to attempt national police force action. But we must also consider whether we want to destroy the limitations and divisions of power under the federal system. Do we wish to institute a national police force which today would claim to enforce individual rights in Mississippi, but which tomorrow might, following a change in public opinion, destroy individual rights in Illinois? In the last paragraph, Senator Douglas expresses admiration for the, quote, idealistic and self-sacrificing students who are there to, quote, help the suppressed Negroes to become literate and to secure and execute their rights to vote. I shall support all appropriate efforts by the administration to protect them, just as I have worked for 16 years in the Senate for enactment of effective legislation to protect the civil rights of all Americans. With best wishes, faithful, Paul H. Douglas. We get to hear from the suppressed Negroes themselves in their responses to the New York Times article about Bolivar County. Not surprisingly, when able to speak freely without fear of reprisal, black residents of Bolivar County expressed a different view of life there. The Times carried their responses in its August 9th issue. The Negro... He doesn't want to marry your son or daughter, only wants equal justice and better pay. We are not happy with the way we live in Mississippi. We can't be happy at 30 cents an hour. That means $3.10 and 10 hours a day, and we can't live on that. What we want is a decent living. If the white man gets $2.50 an hour, well, the Negro should get the same thing. Because a man ain't but a man, and a woman ain't but a woman. Because God made us all out of one blood. It don't make no difference. We're all one kind. We're all human. If Caps thinks we're happy, why don't he try living like the Negroes? After he has done this, ask him if he is happy. Most white people actually seem to believe that colored people were put on earth for the convenience and use of white persons. If you believe this, you are entirely mistaken. To those of you who pay your maid $15 per week, you are sinning against her. You are starving her children. You must love your neighbor. You cannot love someone and pay them $3 or $4 for their work. How foolish of us to pay taxes and not be able to use the facilities for which we are paying. When we want school integration, we aren't simply concerned with going to school with whites. We want to go to schools with the machinery and equipment that is preparing white children to take part in the space age. To the Southern white men, don't worry about warning your children against their Negro classmates. We are interested in machinery and equipment for education. The Southern white men are not serious about segregation. We can say to you that it is too late to start worrying about integration. You have already mongrelized the white race and the black one, too. The only thing you haven't done is claim your children. We are afraid to speak for our rights. We are afraid to register to vote, afraid of being jailed or beaten. And as far as marriage, the Negroes are not wanting to marry your girls. We only want justice, freedom of speech, equal rights, decent jobs, equal pay, and all be punished alike. Greenwood had its Freedom Day on the same day as Cleveland's. The students from the Greenwood Freedom School reported on it in their newspaper, The Freedom Carrier. July 16, 1964. Today, all people who believe in freedom should join us for Freedom Day. Time and time again, we have tried to register for voting, and Martha Lamb, the registrar for LaFleur County, has turned Negroes away or has failed them. But we shall not let Martha discourage us. The more people she turns away, the more people must go to the courthouse. Today marks the fourth Freedom Day in Greenwood. During the first Freedom Day, the courthouse was picketed, but no arrests were made. However, the second Freedom Day, a large number of people were arrested. The last Freedom Day was without incident. We do not know what the outcome of today's Freedom Day will be, but whatever the outcome will be, we will not let it stop us. Many Negroes have been to the courthouse over and over, only to be turned away by the white power that stands behind that counter. It is time to show the white people in Mississippi, and people all over the United States, that we want to vote, and we will not stop trying until we get the vote. Today, there will also be Freedom Registrars down at the courthouse, so that anyone who wants to join the Freedom Democratic Party in Mississippi may do so. Black Greenwood citizens arrived at the courthouse wearing their Sunday best. Women wore flowered dresses and the men weathered suits and fedoras. Volunteers and SNCC staffers held picket signs while a bus waited across the street to take people to jail. The police chief announced, you are free to go and register. The chief, however, did not allow picketing. Citizens lined up all day to register, even as it started pouring rain. Greenwood's Freedom Day yielded the most arrests of the summer, 111. The protesters were packed into dank cells in the bowels of the Laflora County Courthouse. The women decided to go on a hunger strike after one of them spit out her pepper-laced rice and lima beans. The prisoners were segregated by race as well as gender and communicated by passing messages through an opening in the wall to a prisoner named Patterson, who was serving 18 months. At about midnight, Patterson delivered a message from the black men. They would join in the hunger strike. The note also read, We will sing loud about daybreak. Freedom. After a while, arrests seemed to outnumber completed registrations. A Midsummer SNCC report on total registrations was not very encouraging. Canton, number of those who took the test, 22. Number of those who passed, 0. Hattiesburg, number of those who took the test, 70, number of those who passed, 5. Greenwood, number of those who took the test, 123, number of those who passed, 2. With arrests came the need for bail money. Bail was a major concern for the summer project and the topic of multiple letters and phone calls. Cephas Hughes mentioned it at the end of a July letter to Donald Nelson. My conservative estimate of my living expenses for the remaining seven weeks is $105, which is like $15 per week. There is no one that I know that has nearly that much money. However, there is a slight chance that someone else will raise my bail. I'll write to them tonight and let you know as soon as I hear from them. Yours in freedom, Cephas. I've been given the name of a lawyer in California who will raise bail for a, quote, few of the volunteers. I'll see if it's not too late for me to become one of the few. Freedom days were costly in terms of bail money and manpower, and the return on investment was relatively low. So Bob Moses decided to focus the project's energy on the Democratic National Convention, where they would challenge the the legitimacy of the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party delegation. Blacks had been prevented from voting in the Democratic Party primaries and caucuses and from attending the party's delegate selection meetings in June. So the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, founded earlier that year, held its own conventions. Farmers, sharecroppers, maids, and cooks met in churches and community centers. They elected their own chairmen, secretaries, and delegates. And Bob Moses directed all summer volunteers who are not working in freedom schools or community centers, to devote their time to organizing for the convention challenge. Instead of canvassing for voter registration, SNCCs and summer volunteers canvassed for signatures. Moses aimed to get 400,000 people to sign up as Freedom Democrats, then lowered the goal to 200,000. Each name, it was hoped, would lend legitimacy to this parallel party when its delegates traveled to Atlantic City in August. Signatures were sought in beauty parlors, barbershops, and cotton fields. In making their pitch, volunteers assured black citizens that there was no danger in signing this paper. Quote, the boss man will never know. The word went out by newspaper and radio ads. Folk artists like Pete Seeger performed in the state, raising money and awareness for Freedom Summer and the MFDP. It was in the middle of a Pete Seeger concert in Meridian, Mississippi, when Sun learned the fate of James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman. As I mentioned in the first Freedom Summer episode, the three men had set off for Longdale, Mississippi, to investigate a church burning, and never returned. Two of the three men were white, and unlike the many disappearances of black Mississippians, this incident made national headlines. FBI agents had scoured the state for the three men whose burnt, Ford Station Wagon had been pulled from the Bogue Chito Swamp. Busloads of personnel searched rivers, swamps, and fields for the men's bodies. Meanwhile, some locals dismissed the disappearance as a hoax. On August 3rd, the Jackson Clarion Ledger editorialized, If they were murdered, it is by no means the first case of such disposition by communists of their dupes to ensure their silence. However, The careful absence of clues makes it seem likely that they are quartered in Cuba or another communist area awaiting their next task. There is no reason to believe them seriously harmed by citizens of the most law-abiding state of the Union. The next day, on a tip from an informant known as Mr. X, FBI agents arrived at an earth-filled dam in Neshoba County. They were equipped with a steam shovel, tarps, and a search warrant. At 11 a.m., after they had been digging for two hours, they noticed, quote, the faint odor of decaying material. At 3 p.m., they unearthed the body of Mickey Schwerner with one bullet hole in his armpit. Andrew Goodman's body, with a bullet through the chest, was found at 5.07. James Cheney's at 5.14. The FBI spent over $800,000, interviewed 1,000 locals and nearly 500 Klansmen, to find out what happened to the three men in their last moments. Klansman and Neshoba County Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price had stopped the men for speeding. Schwerner was driving at the time. Goodman and Cheney were held on suspicion of church arson. Word got out that, quote, they had three civil rights workers in jail in Philadelphia and that they needed their asses tore up. Seven hours later, the men were released on bail and headed south on Route 19. Having been tipped, three cars of Klansmen pursued them, and Deputy Cecil Price soon joined them. The chase over roller coaster hills reached 100 miles per hour, and then for unknown reasons, the car pulled over. Price ordered the three men into the back seat of his car, then he drove back towards Philadelphia, and other members of the murdering group followed. A Klansman drove the blue station wagon. Some time later, Price's car skidded to a stop. Wayne Roberts, who had been dishonorably discharged from the Marines, raced up to Price's car. Roberts shouted, Are you that... lover at Michael Schwerner before shooting him in the chest? Seconds later, he shot Andrew Goodman. James Jordan had been riding in the front seat next to Price. After shooting James Chaney, he said, You didn't leave me anything but a... But at least I killed Mia." The killers had already arranged for a bulldozer operator to bury the men. When they remembered that they needed to do something with the car, they went to a garage on Route 19 and came back with a jar of enough gasoline to torch it. Rita Schwerner hoped that her husband, Mickey, could be buried alongside his good friend, James Chaney, but there was not a mortician in Mississippi who would participate in an integrated burial. Schwerner's and Goodman's bodies were flown to New York for burial. On August 7th, James Chaney was was laid to rest in Mississippi. Chaney's friend, Dave Dennis, gave an angry eulogy during which he correctly predicted that the killers would not be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. The state did not press charges at that time, so federal authorities used a conspiracy charge because there was no federal murder statute. Ultimately, Price and six other men were convicted of conspiracy to violate the men's civil rights. Seven were acquitted, and there were mistrials in three cases. In 2005, Edgar Ray Killen was convicted of manslaughter for orchestrating the three murders. The Klan leader did not pull the trigger himself, and was at a funeral home at the time of the murders. He died at the age of 92 while serving three 20-year sentences. And now the 1964 Democratic Convention was only two weeks away. Snick did not have enough money for the trip to Atlantic City and put out a call for help. Harry Belafonte came to the rescue. The world-famous Calypso singer had helped finance the Freedom Rides and the March on Washington. He had held $50-a-plate dinners in five East Coast cities to raise money. The discovery of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman also prompted an outpouring of generosity, and Belafonte had $60,000 in cash to give to Snick. It was too much to wire, so he decided to deliver it in person. He invited his friend, Sidney Poitier, to join him, reasoning, they might think twice about killing two big... The two stars were met at the airport by James Foreman, a convoy of three SNCC vehicles, and one car driven by Klansmen. The Klan chased them through cotton fields all the way to the edge of Black Greenwood. Finally, they arrived at the Elks Hall, where a jubilant crowd watched as Belafonte handed over a satchel full of money. The MFDP faced more obstacles before the convention. The Mississippi Attorney General denied their charter, prohibited their use of the word Democratic, and issued an injunction barring them from leaving the state. But on the evening of August 19th, the Freedom Party delegates boarded three buses with 63,000 signatures. This was far short of Bob Moses' initial goal of 400,000, but the travelers were hopeful as they sang freedom songs. They'd held their state convention in Jackson, had carefully followed the Democratic Party's rules for presenting a challenge and had been told by their lawyer that they had a good chance of being seated at the convention. When they got to Atlantic City, they got to work. There was little time for strolling the boardwalk. The Alabama delegates were already threatening to walk out of the convention if the Freedom Democrats were seated. The head of the Mississippi NAACP, Aaron Doc Henry, spoke with the press while other party members handed out booklets. The publication cited two dozen legal precedents for the challenge and recounted the crimes against Herbert Lee, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and James Cheney. Delegates lobbied the Credentials Committee. Ten percent of the committee's 108 members, or 11 people, were needed to issue a minority report supporting the challenge. Then, with the support of eight state delegations, there would be a debate and vote on national television their petition was as follows dear congressman we believe that the honor of the house of representatives of the united states and the integrity of our system of government is deeply compromised by the presence of congressmen from the state of mississippi who are there by virtue of elections that are conducted in blatant and notorious violation of the requirements of the constitution of the United States of America. We therefore urge you to do all in your power to support the challenge brought by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and vote to unseat the congressional delegation sent to the United States House of Representatives from the state of Mississippi until such time as a delegation elected in free elections, open to all and conducted in accordance with the Constitution, is sent to the Congress from Mississippi. At 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, Freedom Party lawyer Joe Rao st- stood on the floor of the convention hall next to four filing cabinets containing those 63,000 signed forms. The Harvard-educated attorney was also a Washington insider and had promised to move heaven and earth to get the Freedom Party's challenge to the convention floor. Earlier that day, party leaders had moved the credential committee meeting to a tiny room that would fit only one network news camera. The well-connected Rao got wind of this and protested to a White House aide. Eventually, President Johnson allowed the MFDP to make its case in the convention hall. Cameras from all three major networks rolled as Rao stood speaking between Mississippi's all-white delegation on one side and the mostly black delegation on the other. Aaron Henry spoke, followed by Reverend Edwin King. Next up was Fannie Lou Hamer. Before a national audience, Hamer told the story of being kicked off her farm when she tried to register to vote. And she told the story that she told the summer volunteers of being told by a jailer, we're going to make you wish she was dead, and then being brutally beaten with a blackjack. All of this on account of we wanted to register. To become first-class citizens and if the freedom democratic party is not seated now i question america is this america the land of the free and the home of the brave where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hooks because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in america But even though network news cameras were rolling, America did not see Ms. Hamer on TV that afternoon. President Johnson, seeing all of this unfold, called an impromptu news conference, which which was covered instead of Hamer's testimony. The president's urgent message? A reminder of Kennedy's assassination nine months before, his criteria for selecting a running mate, which he had not done yet. By the time he was done speaking, so was Hamer, but the networks re-aired her riveting testimony that evening. Within minutes of the broadcast, telegrams began flooding the White House. More than 400 would come in before the night ended. With only one exception, the telegrams demanded that Freedom Democrats be seated. Eleven and eight, support from 11 Credentials Committee members and eight state delegations, seemed within their grasp. The Credentials Committee met on Sunday afternoon promising an answer by 6 p.m. There were three options. They could seat the entire Freedom Party instead of the white delegation. They could seat none of the Freedom Party. Or, if each delegation signed a loyalty oath to LBJ, they could both be seated, black and white, with each delegate receiving half a vote. Such a solution had been used to settle previous challenges, including one presented by then-Congressman Lyndon Johnson in 1944. Now President Johnson offered the Freedom Democrats seats as, quote, honored guests with no voting privileges. This back-of-the-bus treatment was unacceptable to the MFDP. A fourth option was also proposed, giving the MFDP two seats. A subcommittee worked through the evening. By now, Rao had promises from 17 committee members to vote for a minority report. The president took drastic measures to prevent this. The FBI broke into the SNCC Corps Atlantic City offices and tapped the phones. Agents quickly learned and informed the White House which delegates the Freedom Party was lobbying. The administration used other gathered intelligence to threaten potential judgeships, appointments, and promotions if the Freedom Party was not abandoned. And LBJ told a friend that VP hopeful Senator Hubert Humphrey had, quote, no future in this party at all if this big war comes off here and the South all walks out and we get in a hell of a mess, end quote. In a meeting in his hotel suite, Humphrey reminded the Freedom Democrats that he had led the most liberal civil rights platform in American history and implored them to take the two-seat deal. With tears in her eyes, Hamer said to Humphrey, quote, I've been praying about you, and you're a good man, and you know what's right. The trouble is, you're afraid to do what you know is right. You just want this job. But, Mr. Humphrey, if you take this job, you won't be worth anything. Mr. Humphrey, I'm going to pray for you again. End quote. As the convention opened on Tuesday night, anchors Chet Huntley and David Brinkley wondered aloud whether there would be a floor fight or a complete walkout by the Southern delegates. More telegrams came into the White House, now complaining that Negroes had taken over the country. The president's mood grew darker and darker, and he threatened to end his pursuit of a second term. There were threats in Atlantic City, too. If Joe Rowe did not support the two-seat compromise, he would lose his job with the United Auto Workers. If Martin Luther King Jr. did not support the compromise, he would lose his UAW funding. He told the group... Quote, Being a Negro leader, I want you to take this. But if I were a Mississippi Negro, I would vote against it. End quote. In the middle of the wheeling and dealing and cajoling, Freedom Party supporters held picket signs. Stokely Carmichael, who would later change his name to Kwame Ture, recalled On the boardwalk outside the convention hall, staff, local folk, and Northern supporters had set up a round the clock vigil. Volunteers on their way home from Mississippi detoured through Atlantic City, some bringing their parents. Occasionally, the families of the murdered workers came by to stand with us. There were giant pictures of our three martyrs and the burned-out shell of the station wagon from the Bogue Chitto Swamp on display. The folks kept singing. Mrs. Hamer and Bernice Regan came by to lead the singing and members of the delegation came by to make speeches and thank the people. Visiting politicians came to pledge support. At times, the crowd reached 3, even 4,000 people. It seemed that the Freedom Party delegates were divided by class on the compromise. Aaron Henry, a graduate of Xavier College, and a few others supported it. The deal might not be what they wanted, but Democrats couldn't afford losing the White House to Barry Goldwater. The sharecroppers and maids held their ground, as Fanny Lou Hamer said, quote, "We didn't come all this way for no two seats, cause all of us is tired." End quote. And they were not the only people unhappy with the deal. The compromise also promised that future conventions would never seat all-white delegations, and required Mississippi to swear allegiance to the Democratic ticket. The state party was insulted and outraged. Mississippi Governor Johnson ordered the delegates home. But the Credentials Committee approved the compromise, and Walter Mondale announced that the MFDP had accepted the compromise, though no such thing happened. On Wednesday night, LBJ accepted the party's nomination. He and his running mate, Hubert Humphrey, linked arms in triumph. Newspapers hailed the compromise as a, quote, triumph of moral force, and quote, nothing short of heroic, end quote. The next morning, the Freedom Democrats boarded buses and went home. John Lewis described the conclusion of the Freedom Party challenge this way. As far as I'm concerned, this was the turning point of the civil rights movement. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Until then, despite every setback and disappointment and obstacle we had faced over the years, the belief still prevailed that the system would work. The system would listen the system would respond. Now, for the first time, we had made our way to the very center of the system. We had played by the rules, done everything we were supposed to do, had played the game exactly as required, had arrived at the doorstep, and found the door slammed in our face. The last of the summer volunteers also went back to their homes that weekend. Well, most of them. Philadelphia, Mississippi, October 4th. Dear Mom and Dad, As I write this letter, I am on the roof of our headquarters, observing a sunset I cannot even begin to describe. The hills of red dirt, the pine woods, the mountains and shacks, silhouetted against the blood-red sun and clouds, all this and the rest of it takes my breath away. Now, and at all such times, I find myself possessed by a deep melancholy, a heart-rending feeling for the black and white toilers of this state, both victims of a system that they neither created nor flourish under. There have been incidents of violence and intimidation, but they hardly seem worth noting at a time like this. I only know that I must carry on this struggle that other people have died in and that some day that system will be changed. Love, Tommy I was only planning to do two episodes about this topic, but there's still so much I could share about what happened after Freedom Summer and some of the things that didn't happen that summer. So, in about 30 days, I hope you'll be back for part three of this Freedom Summer series or perhaps for a different chapter of the American story. The letters of Cephas Hughes read in this episode are accessible via the Miami University Libraries, Walter Havikhurst Special Collections, and University Archives. I'm also grateful to the Wisconsin Historical Society, the source of many letters and reports. The interview with Unita Blackwell is from the Washington University in St. Louis Library. Muriel Tillinghast's recollections are recorded in Hands on the Freedom Plow, Personal Accounts by Women in SNCC. And the last letter of the episode was from the book Letters from Mississippi, Compiled by Elizabeth Sutherland Martinez The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com And check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode Please like the podcast on Facebook Follow on Twitter, at Ordinary Letters Or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts Stitcher, Spotify, and Himalaya